Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special returning guest is Akil Patel from propertysharemarketeconomics.com. Akil Patel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I think you've come on at an absolutely amazing opportune time because, of course, the markets... I've just seen three stockbrokers plummet past the window already and it's it's barely two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> US hasn't even opened yet. Yeah. yeah. So what do, you, what do you make of the markets at the moment from a cycle perspective? I saw your tweet that said that we should have anticipated it. Uh, what, what? Why should we have done that and what do you think is coming next? This is oh, just well, for, for reference. This is being recorded on Friday, the seventeenth of June. For anybody that wants to know when when this is, when now is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, understood. So, um, well, they should have anticipated it because they should have been one of my subscribers. Um, <laughs> uh, but so we put out we put out an annual forecast of the stock market, the Dow, the Nasdaq, and the FTSE, and the all odds every January, and it called for a fairly significant correction. Uh, Around the middle of the year, I, I I actually think the the low the low might be coming in relatively soon, but it remains to be seen what happens in the next sort of few couple of weeks. Um, I mean, did I think the correction would be this severe? Probably not. But in January, I wasn't anticipating, you know, quite the level of geopolitical disruption that we've had and the sort of knock-on effects on global supply chains and other things, but. In terms of the shape of the curve for the market this year, it's actually been pretty accurate. Um, I suppose the bigger question you're probably going to ask is um, is kind of how does this fit into the overall 18-year cycle and does it change things? Yeah, I um, wonder. I was going to ask whether it attenuates it slightly or, or amplifies it given the geopolitical events that are going on. Yeah, so I, I suppose there's a sort of implicit assumption when when I get asked this question um, in the people who are asking it, that, you know, the cycle can't repeat if things aren't hunky-dory. You know, you can't really have a major boom if, if you know, people are worried about imminent starts of World War Three or nuclear conflict and, and um, inflation spiking this quickly. But, I mean, in fact, that's not, that's not true. I mean, the cycle's been going on for over 200 years, and in that time, we've had some pretty savage uh, events. We've had very savage inflation. We've had, you know, pretty significant turmoil in across the globe. And and I think part of part of the issue is now, you know, news is twenty four seven, and we're sort of reading about the ins and outs of the nuclear, of the nuclear, the Ukraine conflict, conflict, sort of every day, every minute almost. Whereas, you know, arguably the the Cuban Missile Crisis, an equivalent point in the previous cycle, was uh, was you know probably even more significant. Um, you could also trust the news back then. You could trust the news to a much greater degree. I, I wouldn't say probably fully because they were always um, pointing people in the wrong direction at the peak of the cycle. But but yes, no, I, I agree with that. And you know, you there wasn't the pressure to you know come up with an opinion every sort of half an hour, a new opinion, which of course just Sort of feeds in on itself, and you're trying to you're trying to get attention, so you have to sort of hype everything up even more. Um, so, so I mean, the cycle is repeated in pretty difficult circumstances, uh, and I wouldn't necessarily say that what we're experiencing now is is 
more significant than in, in prior episodes. Um, I think that's the first point. Now, in terms of does it knock on, have you know, what effect does it have on the cycle? Well, um, every, every sort of participant from central banks to, you know, large and small businesses to investors to government are, you know, all within the cycle. And they all respond to the same incentives. I think the main thing to, to point out is government policy tends to work better when land prices aren't collapsing. And so I think, you know, actions that, that um, the Fed are taking right now to finally catch up to the reality of what's going on. Central banks are always behind the curve. Um, will probably work, and also, um, you know, I'd imagine that at some point the Ukraine conflict won't it won't get resolved. I don't think it's going to be resolved for many years, but there'll probably be a a somewhat stable status quo, albeit not particularly nice for people living in the eastern side of Ukraine. Um, but, you know, people will stop paying attention to that. Um, China will end its ludicrous lockdowns. Um, and whatever form supply chains take in the future, I mean, they won't be as long as they were in over the last 30 years. But, you know, we'll adjust to some new reality. Of course, prices will be different to what they were in 2019 and before that. But that surely means they're going to be higher then because we, we, we're coming off peak globalization and almost by definition that means a, a more inflationary world than anyone listening to this has ever experienced well quite possibly but but you know inflation and prices are higher but they might not be changing quite as much as they have over the last two years so so i think once there's that certainty you know the market makes adjustments and then we go we we we, we go on our merry way and ultimately end up kind of creating more money, um, usually by the private banking system for, for mortgages and, and for speculation in, in other assets. And um, we get to a peak and then it all comes crashing down. So I don't see that being disrupted in any way, actually, um, by by recent events. Um, uh, but clearly, there's a lot of fear and worry out there. Um, uh, but, you know, has there has been in previous cycles. Yeah, I mean, it's um, quite common for the market to go down in obviously environments like this but then yeah. stay the sentiment to stay negative whilst the market then recovers that's the real disparity yeah. that's Climbing the real walls of worry yes exactly it's the yeah, the, yeah. so there are many people who it's almost for market terms it's almost perfect um to see something happen like this and in this way because i remember the 2001 terrorist attacks when everybody was you know, very concerned in the markets. That there was talk of when America went into uh, Afghanistan, it was was there going to be World War Three and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And the market ended the year, you know, higher than before. So it's um, it is it is possible to have these amazing turnarounds whilst the sentiment is still negative. But there are many there are people out there who are saying this is the top. So the top that you're predicting potentially to begin 26 onwards they are saying no this is the top now which is coming at the wrong potentially at the wrong time if 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 they, if it happens now if, if this is the top it's not meant to happen at this point i mean from a timing point of view but you you'd have to have a well in sort of my view of the world, you'd have had to have a major bout of speculative mania, which was basically involved uh, a very significant proportion of the banking system and very, very highly valued real estate assets and people 
over leveraged and uh, major construction boom and all that sort of thing. We've only had elements of that in certain places. That's fascinating because um, I, I would have I was about to say sounds like that's exactly what we've got. I was having I was at uh, on the top of Parliament Hill having a look over at, at London. Uh, the cranes. Uh, the, the the amount of cranes yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. there are plenty. Uh, yeah, it's where it's when you when you're seeing plenty of cranes on the edge of with all due respect at the edge of Sunderland and oh. uh, and so on, uh, which I think is when you really, when, when you're really, when you really realize that, um, the, that you regionist bastard. Yeah, exactly. I, I only use that because uh, so one of my subscribers, when I first started writing for South bank, in, uh, um, a number Research. of years ago, he, he said that, um, he'd picked up a, a, a property for about 90 grand, a house, you know, five bedroom house, uh, somewhere in Sunderland or the edge of Sunderland for 90 grand, which, and this was about 2009, I think it's about 12 months before it'd been selling for over half a million. What? Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is where, this is where the real speculative orgy takes place. It's in very much, you know, relatively marginal locations. Sorry, sorry. Mar- what, what address is that? There's a, a speculative orgy going on. Where, 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 do you have the address? <laughs> you just said orgy. My ears pricked up. So <laughs> follow the, um, Follow the construction boom, and you'll you'll fight it. So, so we're not we're not basically we're not at that point at the moment. We're not at the point where you feel the speculative boom has got out of control, and then with that, we'd expect to see rampant inflation. We we've got inflation clearly, and yep. prices are going higher clearly, yep. Yep. and you you predicted that when you were last on, but there's a very big difference between a little bit of inflation and hyperinflation which is ultimately what would be the yeah. final stage and when we're, we're not there clearly not there yet well but i don't you don't get hyperinflation every cycle i mean so the period between around 2004 and 2006 7 there was a lot of concern about inflation taking hold but that was in an overall disinflationary trend which started you know i suppose after the cold war ended and sort of had you know the globalization and India and China join the global economy and everything going offshore, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's relative to what you've seen over the past period is, is, is what you get towards the end of the cycle. And what's driving that, which is different to what is driving inflation now, is the money creation uh, taking place is largely within the banking system. And most of that money creation is is for people to is it, is loans extended for people to buy overpriced real estate assets? I I envisaged this as a each cycle makes the next cycle amplified. So perhaps I've I've yeah. misunderstood that because no. uh, yeah because we've got right. oh right okay so then so then we would expect a bigger boom in the ne- in the coming cycle than what we saw prior to 2007, which was an amazing boom in itself. But then, yeah, but not necessarily hyperinflation. That that's, that's really interesting. Uh, Yeah. I mean, the the numbers, the periods of hyperinflation in history are quite, quite few and far between. And they involve, you know, really significant economy wide supply shocks, such like, such as, you know, um, the Zimbabwe farming sector collapsing because of the land had been taken back from white farmers and you know given to people who clearly knew, did not know how to manage uh, a farm efficiently, or you know chunks of 
the German industrial base being, you know, taken over by France, etc. And, you know, and then you've got, and on top of that, you've then got the same level of the same quantity or increasing quantity of money in the economy. So you've got a massive amount of money um, chasing much reduced supply. Um, and, and so then, and then that's, that's when it feeds on itself. And then the response to that is to create even more money and it just goes on and on and on until um, you get a total collapse in the currency. But you don't, you don't, you don't typically see that towards the end of real estate cycle and the the creation of money uh which and this is what i think people don't see is they're focused on you know how much um debt the public sector is creating but actually it's the private sector which is what drives the speculative peaks in the real estate cycle um in fact you, you have several situations where um in, in some countries where the government is almost running a fiscal surplus uh, but still, the economy is growing because uh, you know most of the money creation is done by banks. Tim, did you? I, just, I was going to ask more, but I didn't want to. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just I'm just trying to process all this because the, the trouble with having Acolon is so much. There's so much to process. It takes takes time for those of us that have have sort of um, analog brains. It's a little bit difficult to catch up. Um, well, I, so let, I was, me, let me ponder some of this stuff. Yeah, so I, I was going to say at the moment with the stock market going down, with the Fed raising interest rates, with the Bank of England going to do the same. Yeah. Um, also, I heard a quick report, which you may have heard about the um, the changes to the landlord rule, the rules with regard to being a landlord. So apparently, they're making right. it. Simply in simple terms, they're making it harder to be a landlord. They're making it easier yeah. for the tenants, yeah. and that's going to make people exit the that particular market. Now, that's yeah. very important given what you've just said that the mm -hmm. private sector will be driving the 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 growth of house prices. So they're squeezing they're squeezing them, but probably not enough to make that much difference. Is is the housing market in this particular? part of the cycle expected to go down and then back up again or is it not really going to be affected would you would you have thought um yeah look there's there's quite a bit in that so i mean the first i think i've might have said this last time um during the course of a, a an entire cycle it's not that you know in any given location prices are you know going up sort of for 14 years before you get to the peak and then they go down for four years what you tend to, I mean, the housing market is essentially a local market. So you get price fluctuations up and down, you know, mostly up, but sometimes down in, in a given locality, depending on, you know, who's moving in, you know, is there, is there a new school opening? Or, uh, is that a school closing, et cetera, et cetera. Transport links, um, et cetera, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so when people are not buying in, in, say, where I live in Islington, they might be looking sort of next door in Harringay. And and so prices in Harringay will rise relative to Islington. And then after Harringay, it's, you know, whatever's next to Harringay. So um, you get that sort of that that sort of dynamic. I think what um, I mean, the government so making making property more difficult for landlords um, it's not just started now. I mean, it, it started really in, in 2016 when when tax rules were changed and you couldn't sort of um, reduce your tax payments by, you know, your interest, the interest payments on your buy-to-let mortgage, for example. Myers, wasn't it? 
Yeah. Mm. And then also stamp duty went up 3%, etc. So that took out quite a bit of demand. Some of it came back in actually after Brexit, because, um, you know, the value of the pound fell dramatically against most currencies. And there was a lot of uh, uh, money looking for for sort of cheaper assets. And central London property market was one of those destinations. So, you know, you do get sort of flows. I think what's happening now is they're actually trying to make the professional sorry, the landlord sector more professional. And so they are um, more attractive to larger, often institutional investors and, and less attractive to individual ones. Mm. And to be honest, some of that, some of that is probably not a bad thing. Um, we've got some really shady practices going on in the London, in particular, uh, rental market. Um, it, it does shift demand, but actually what you tend to find is uh, in any case, um, prices rise more rapidly outside of London and the southeast in the second half of the cycle. You've certainly seen that. Now, it might be people moving out of London for different reasons. Uh, in, in in the 2000s, I think a lot of government business was starting to be located out of London. They created government offices that, you know, they were fairly large employers. Uh, and so people moved to places like Newcastle out of London, etc. Um, in, in In this scenario, I think Actually, there is probably quite a genuine attempt to create other cities as pretty um, attractive destinations for businesses. And of course, people are following that. And then, of course, there's been the pandemic effect of people thinking, well, I don't want to live in a cramped London flat. I actually like to have space and because we can work in a different way, uh, we can be located elsewhere. So but the same dynamic, maybe slightly different motivation um, and, and probably the primary dynamic uh, in any property market is if in in postcode x prices are too expensive uh, people will go to go to another postcode to to, to look and you know you know <laughs> property in london is is extremely expensive akil in terms of the the long cycle what's your assessment of where we are in relation to um bond yields interest rates because we, um, we, if we take for example the us yeah, you know, the U.S. Treasury market as as the benchmark, which it still remains for better yeah. or for worse. It's it, yeah. you know yields have shot up quite far, quite they fast have. already. Yeah. Um. But I, I mean, I I would suggest that basically a forty year rate juggernaut is or a super tanker is in the process of slowly turning around. And yeah. my sense is that most, if not all, of the market is not yet prepared for that. So there's still people are still I'm hoping they come down the, again. The, the, yeah, the, the 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 penny is still is still yet to drop. So that that suggests to me more pain ahead. But what's your take? Um, yeah, quite possibly. And I think ultimately, rising interest rates is what squeezes businesses and and households. Um, sorry, apologies if you can hear some ambient noise. Um, uh, so rising interest rates uh, squeeze businesses and households towards the end of the cycle. So they they squeeze from two directions, both in terms of higher uh, rents and. Um, you know, high, having to pay higher prices for higher cost of ca- higher cost of capital. Uh, exactly, and and um, uh, interest rates are higher. So there's two components, um, and you know, the it, demand doesn't keep up. You can't shift um, that onto customers. Um, you know, disposable income goes down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so the first thing that really the first sign that the, the peak is approaching is even though the economy as a whole is booming, there's a lot of construction going on, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of speculation, a lot of people making money, you start to see that um, 
consumer demand is actually not growing by the same rate as it was before. It's actually quite a good sign that uh, we're getting to the peak. Um, I, so in terms of the the 40-year super tanker, well, yes, I mean, I think I think we will I think the rate of change of interest rate uh, yields will maybe slow down. So you know we have had a really significant shift in the, over the last um, was for six to twelve months. Because it's not sorry to cut in, it's not so much absolute as relative. Because we're yeah. coming off such a low base of basically exactly. zero that anything looks dramatic. Any, exactly, exactly. Um, but I do think I do think yeah. Uh, yields will continue to rise, albeit at a slower rate, um, and become, you know, one of those um, established facts in the background um, uh, until such time as, you know, it starts to get really too, things start to get really too expensive for businesses, as you say, cost do of capital. You, do you think that the that governments and central banks will attempt yield suppression in bond markets? Because the, the Japanese have been doing this for years already, and it looks like that's now reached its end game in Japan. Um, uh, yes, I, so um, I don't know actually. Um, I mean, so, so I saw a, a tweet. I think it was a tweet from um, Capitalist Exploit saying you can have, you know, basically control um, bond yields, or you can control your current, you know, your your foreign exchange rate, but you can't, you can't have both. So choose which one you want. This is in, the, in the context in the context of Japan, so yeah, yeah, and but but for from the Japanese point of view, it sort of fit well with their sort of export-led economy. Um, didn't do anything for for domestic consumption, I suppose. Um, I I don't know is is the short answer to that. Um, I think at the moment, probably what will happen is as things calm down a little bit, and I think they will. Um, you know, Powell will have his sort of quasi Volcker moment, um, mm. uh, and maybe, and maybe, you know, might think that he's more in control of things than he really is. Uh, so when you get to the more mature end of the cycle in, in a, you know, three or four years, um, if inflation is again picking up, so the rate of change is starting to increase again, um, you know, he might maybe the political dynamics might be slightly different um that i mean that i think is uh, people don't really can they don't talk so overtly about that but i think you know a lot of what central bankers do is very much shaped by the political environment um you know if if uh, you know I mean, they, 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 they have political masters to serve well exactly and say say trump is in the white house in, in 20, after 2024 which you know is sort of fairly likely at the moment um you know, he was very open about wanting interest rates to be low and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you have a booming real estate market. I mean, Trump being a real estate man, would, the last thing he would want is uh, interest rates to be up. So he would be sort of trying to get Powell to kind of keep a lid on yields, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and actually, it's something like that which could well sort of precipitate a really significant crisis when you get to the peak. Um, so it, it's certainly a possibility. I don't know. I think for the moment... Um, if I'm right in thinking that things will calm down, I think Powell will start to be lauded a bit, and um, he will take take the uh, the foot off the brake. I mean, he, he probably won't reduce interest rates much, but he'll stop raising them and look very and look very look very strong and look very competent and all that sort of thing, which is typically gets people relaxed and they go off another speculative binge. 
Yeah, I, I, my, my feeling was that they would raise... I, I thought they'd raise by 50 basis points. I was surprised that they went by 75, but I thought that they would then be influenced by the way the stock markets reacted. And it has been reacting hard. The American, it's puked. It's puked. And the American market has got... Um, if you're an American exporter, you've got higher energy prices. You've got um, a stronger high, currency, a, a a currency that's effectively like a black hole, which is just sort of sucking in capital. It's just going up at an incredible rate. You've got supply chain problems at the same time. Um, it's almost like a perfect storm, and you've got yeah. the Fed saying <laughs> exactly the wrong time. Um, they should have done this a long time ago, of course. Uh, and then when yeah. it comes to the time when they're supposed to do it, they don't have the 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 the, the wiggle room to move um, because they are painted into the corner because of what they've done before. And this is the kicking the can down the road problem. Um, when you think you're going to be raising interest rates and controlling inflation and doing all the things that you're supposed to do, inevitably, the market is not in the position that you think it will be. And it might not be able to take higher interest rates. And that's exactly what's why we've had this massive reaction um yeah. so i i feel that they will f from now the, I, I agree that the market should start to calm down a bit because they're going to see the fed looking at the stock market and thinking uh, and the slowdown that's bound to happen from it and um attenuate their their very bullish sort of expectations for interest rates probably from about september um so it's it sounds like that that's similar to what you're thinking as well yeah yeah i think in a nutshell i mean you know interest rates of course take some some time to feed through into the economy yeah. um uh, and you know inflation numbers are you know, always sort of fairly lagging as well um so so i think and you know the market is on the whole a pretty efficient news discounting mechanism i think the market is looking to what potentially will be going on six months from now definitely that now possibly means that you know headline inflation numbers will continue to be high into the end of the year uh, i mean look i mean i think that we, we don't really know what energy is going to do in the autumn i mean are we going to are we going to have you know really really high gas prices because we can't find some kind of stable status quo to ukraine and and and, and Russia refuses to supply gas to to Europe when uh, you know weather starts to turn cold, uh, all that sort of thing, and that of course will have a massive effect on uh, inflation numbers. But anyway, so on the basis that the market is looking ahead to events um, sort of into next year, um, you know you might still find that inflation numbers are, are high, um, interest rates are are sort of uh, still relatively elevated, maybe not growing quite as much, et cetera. But if, you, if, if the market finds a bottom sometime uh, in, the, in the next quarter, which is what I'm expecting, I think it will suggest that between the fact that the economy has slowed down a bit um, and also there, the, the effects of the Federal Reserve having raised rates in the Bank of England and others have follow, following suit, the ECB withdrawing liquidity from the markets as well, uh, I think you'll start to see that um, that's probably pricing in slightly more benign, quote unquote, conditions um, from next year onwards. But do you not find some of this sort of rate rate hike posturing a little bit pathetic to the extent that I mean, the, the US CPI print was, I think, 8.6 percent. Yeah. So they're raising rates from whatever it was, half half a percent to 
by 75 basis points. So it's, it's on a one handle for like Fed funds, but one one is significantly less than eight, and eight probably isn't the real figure anyway. And the real problem here is not is not sort of access to credit so much as the fact that 40% of all the dollars ever printed were printed in the last two years. This is all just nonsense. It's it's a game. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of a lot of politics is nonsense and and is a game. But I don't. I wouldn't say that it's. I don't know how much more nonsensical it was than in, in previous. <laughs> that that's that's where I would sort of maybe slightly. You have a. Uh, I, this is not meant at all as an insult. But you have a very relaxed posture towards the the insanity of our current monetary system. Meditation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but look. So for me, fundamentally, the really, uh, as I've said before in this in this podcast and elsewhere, is that you know the really key thing is not necessarily what the government is doing; it's what the private banking system is doing, and that's. Mm. What, actually, one criticism of a lot of the commentary and criticism of the Fed, which is mostly justified, is that it's it kind of gets um, banks off the hook, or not, and not just banks, but whoever's supplying money into the economy, mm. um, because you know we we get sort of very exercised by um, by these things. Now, I do agree that uh, the real reason that we're in this mess is because of the enormous stimulus that. Um, was uh, produced in response to the pandemic. Now, even now, so I know that's, that, that's where the inflation came from. Yes, I think you know that's brain. exactly right. I think the playbook that people uh, applied at the start of the pandemic was appropriate to a financial crisis, where because of the collapse of the banking system, there's basically a massive withdrawal of liquidity from the economy, and so in that scenario, you've got to try and reintroduce money and it's you know this is sort of keynesian economics but not supposed to do it via the banking system in a way that just basically enables people to um you know do all the sorts of silly things that went on in the 2010s in terms of share buybacks and you know um uh you know basically putting money straight back into the stock market and not actually investing in the economy and making it more productive and more resilient and all that sort of thing which is i think how it's supposed to work um, but that that playbook was not relevant to uh, 2020 because we didn't have a collapsing banking system, uh, and so they created all this money on top of something that wasn't slowing particularly uh, particularly strongly, um, except for the very sharp shock when everyone was told to work. You know, well, basically, the economy was shut for two months or three months, or whatever it was. Um, so we had this enormous money creation on top of something that hadn't lost a lot of money in it created this enormous speculative binge in, in stocks and in other things. Some of it, um, it has to be said, obviously putting the putting um, money into people's pockets to to spend um, at a time when some of it was a bit unfortunate because, you know, I'm not sure that anyone really anticipated the knock-on effects on, on supply chains. Uh, and so you had this enormous pent-up demand because everyone, not only did everyone have money to spend because savings were were sort of fairly high, um, but then there's and I was talking to um, you know Owen Tracy the other the other day about this. There's sort of a change in mentality. It's now sort of you only live once type sort of mentality. So you've got to go and spend now. So you get all this additional spending um, requirements and and uh, an economy that can't really respond to meet it. And of course the result is uh, of all those things is is pretty pretty significant inflation. Now. Um, in answer to your question, and apologies for being very long-winded, um, 
I suppose the issue with how far and how much you raise rates is what you think is behind that 8% figure. Uh, and I think there is at least somewhat of a legitimate argument to say, well, all of the all of the factors that have led up to this, i.e. sort of pandemic, um, change in attitudes, uh, a new type of stimulus, which is essentially giving uh, money directly to people, um, et cetera, et cetera. If, if you think some of those factors will shift as the economy resets to a, a new normal, whatever that looks like. And as you say, it's probably going to be shorter supply chains. I think people are calling it globalization. So much more local uh, production, more expensive, but nevertheless, uh, less risky. Um, I think if you think that's a factor, I think there is, I have some sympathy with that, then actually, you know, maybe inflation will by itself moderate um, as long as you don't exacerbate the problem by pumping more money into the system. Um, it remains to be seen, but that's kind of where I'm, that's probably maybe why I'm a bit relaxed at the moment. Um, uh, and, you know, but look to be proven wrong. So what, what, what sort of metrics are you using? Oh, sorry, we got a bit of okay. What sort of metrics are you using to uh, determine where the property market's going and what are your key indicators in in the uh, in the other markets are you looking at short term interest rates long term interest rates both the, the the value of the stock market what influences your decision uh well i mean you could you could possibly argue that i i <laughs> i don't sort of forensically examine every data point um because there's a lot of noise out there a lot of contradictory sort of stuff and uh, i I have this sort of worldview which doesn't sort of deviate very much, and maybe that's maybe that's a flaw in my approach. But um, so, in terms of the property market, I mean, I think the essential part of the property market is whether first-time buyers can get onto the get into the market. Well, they uh, can't, so, obviously. Yeah. So, but then, so then the response to the government is to is to help them onto it, uh, or they move or they move to other locations where it's cheaper and flats are smaller and. You know, the build quality is less, but it happens. See, what happens then is when people move, they're essentially trading housing equity. I mean, they, you know, people get promoted and they earn more and they get married. And so you have two incomes and people work longer hours and take extra jobs and all the sorts of horrible things that go on in order for people to afford a decent home to live. Um, but but your the property market is essentially about trading housing equity. Uh, and as long as the people start at the t- beginning then then that, that sort of carousel keeps going um so that's one thing and i think it should still be pointed out that um in terms of housing affordability which is you know um debt servicing to uh for an average worker sorry uh, debt servicing on an average mortgage in relation to the wages of an average worker um i.e so how much of your income is going towards servicing the the debt on your mortgage um actually we're quite far below the level seen at the peak in 2007 uh, and also in in and particularly so at the peak in in the late 80s so that's that's one indicator suggests that actually you know there is room for people to uh, uh pay more for uh, for for their for their property and more on on their mortgages uh without significantly affecting the property market in fact in indeed probably creating uh, some further sort of price appreciation. Um, 
I think, sorry, there was a question you asked a while ago about sort of what the property market might do um, in the next sort of few months. And so, I mean, you do get these sort of periods where this huge surge in demand and it creates an enormous sort of spike in, uh, in in property price, not spike, but, you know, you have a burst in of property price inflation, appreciation. Um, you know, we had something similar in 2012, 2013. Um, so, you know, after a sort of slowdown period, you get all these people looking to move at the same time and there's not enough supply in the market. And then that takes, you know, a year or two to be absorbed again. So you won't, the next couple of years might not be um, quite so frothy in the property market, but it doesn't mean prices are coming down. It just means they're not increasing by the same amount. So th- that's sort of one thing. I'm quite conscious of where, you know, where the talk is in the property market. And it's usually, you know, it's often outside of London in this part of the cycle, but it does show that people are looking there. It's it's keeping the, you know, it's the, the property market is alive and well. As, as prices appreciate, you get more building because, you know, land has to be a certain sort of, or sorry, not land, um, f- final development values have to be a certain level to induce construction. So when prices are rising you, in, in different places, you'll you'll see a burst of activity in the housing markets, in the office markets, et cetera. Um, and, you know, construction is a big part of the economy. So uh, that, that means that growth will be uh, robust in, in certain sectors. Um, you know, as, uh, there's the wealth effect. So when asset prices are rising, um, uh, people spend more, save less. Um, so that means that consumer demand is, you know, tends to continue growing. Of course, at the moment when people are worried and um, there is, we're, we're shifting to a new sort of level of prices, uh, maybe that will sort of slow down for a bit. But I don't, you know, as I said, I think things will calm down and and so um, spending will return again. Um, other indicators, I mean, I, the only real interest rate one I watch is the yield curve. Now, that's been quite interesting. Um, you know, it does suggest that there is a slowdown coming or that we are in a slowdown now. Um, but it's, you know, when you get a yield curve inversion at the end of the cycle, it's when you really have to pay attention in terms of timing because it's usually about the recession starts about um, 12 to 24 months after that, uh, typically. Uh, and it, at the end of uh, the cycle, it's that's the recession you really want to pay attention to. So your focus is much more on affordability as opposed to the actual value of, of properties. So I had this this image yeah. that you've got this sort of spreadsheet of of a breakdown of London and then obviously the, the rest of the country and where where the hot spots and where the the cool spots etc. So it's obviously not quite like that. Yeah, no, that would be that would be the more sophisticated thing to do. But uh, um, I mean, if I no, but if I was a property investor, that's exactly how I would do it. So, I mean, I I'd have some property investments, but you know, so if I was a, if that was my business, um, that's how I do it. In terms of in terms of just kind of monitoring what's going on, I mean, a quarterly update you can download from most bank websites is is sufficient. Um, yeah. So yeah. Great. T- Tim, did you want to ask any questions here? Um, I guess I'm just going to chime in with my usual sort of obsessions. Um, do you have a view on gold? Um, yeah, gold has been quite interesting. So I've had sort of two main schools of thought. One is, you know, if you'd put all the problems we've faced over the last six months in front of a, a gold investor and said, what's the price of gold going to be? Um they would have said probably something a bit higher than what it is now. It's what, is it what eighteen fifteen or something? 
um, is that right? Or where is it now? 1900? I, I can't remember. Um, so uh, it's been interesting. Other people say, well, um, because rates are rising, again, this is the direction, not not the, in terms of absolute values, mm-hmm. because rates are rising, What something that had driven um, gold in between 2019 and 2021 was, was you know, negative real rates. Sure. Uh, and maybe that's maybe they're becoming a bit less negative. Mm. Okay, we can argue about how high inflation really is. The but gold, the gold doesn't provide an income, so you know. Well, that, and then that's true. That's true. Um, but they're saying that if if given given that sort of dynamic, maybe gold should have gone down uh, a bit more significantly. The um, gold, to be fair, gold is holding up very well relative to crypto. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, yeah, because I mean covers- that's maybe a false comparison. That's like saying, <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what metaphor would be appropriate now, and I wouldn't want to discourage uh, current uh, crypto investors. Well, uh, but, cascading, you know, cascading past me, you know, on the way to not, the pavement, is, even as we speak. I think you know, even as as um, recently as a, two or three months ago, people were actively talking about Bitcoin as a, as as the haven that gold wasn't any longer. Mm. Which is it's been interesting, right? So that, that narrative may have to be revisited. Yeah. So as soon as liquidity leaves the system in a big way, you can basically see what's left standing. So, sure. um, uh, so uh, I, to be honest, I think we'll get to a stage where um, the gold price will find a fairly significant low. So I think maybe there's further downside as as you know maybe if as inflation become comes under control and, and interest rates are still you know. At least as they compared to where they've been, still fairly high. Um, I think I suspect the price of gold will come down. But um, I've said this to my subscribers: I feel that is an important buying opportunity um, for gold. Now, there is a couple of other dynamics at play if you're an investor in the UK, for example. So, so, um, uh, and we're not seeing this yet, of course, because the US is probably tightening the most aggressively. But typically, the second half of the cycle, you see the dollar. Uh, depreciate, uh, which is one of the reasons why commodities have generally a pretty strong second half of the cycle. Um, uh, so if the dollar is de- depreciating, you know, in sterling terms, um, even a rise in, in the gold price might not be quite as good in, in sterling terms as it is in dollar terms. But, you know, having said that, I think the trend for gold over the over the course of the next few years will be on the whole up, but I'm not sure it will go up from here, I think we'll probably see another low first. Do you have a favorite uh, fiat currency? Um, no, not particularly. Um, they're in, they're in hangs a tail. <laughs> no, I, mean, I don't. I mean, I think it's very interesting at the moment that uh, you say that about the US dollar, because it's pretty clear that the um, the rises that we're seeing and the indiscriminate rises will inevitably cause problems further down the road. So it's almost like b- sowing the seeds for this inversion of of the trend. And it's just a yeah. question of how much further it's going to go. Now, I thought it could I be, so. I thought it was going to be potentially a year of two halves and we'd have massive appreciation up until around now and then it would start to depreciate. And it usually happens on the announcement. So after the Fed raised interest rates, when they raised by 75 basis points, it was pretty clear that this explained a lot of 
of, of why the dollar was surging in the background and buy the rumor, sell the fact. So somebody obviously knew that was going on and was hoofing it up before yeah. the, the actual announcement. So I'm, I'm very keen to see how it trades from here, whether it starts. I think we'll get one final move up in the short term just because that's how the markets work. So we get the confirmation. Yeah. But I'm not sure that that would be one to be buying into because it feels a little bit late in this cycle to be becoming yeah. a dollar bull. Um, I, I agree entirely. Yeah. And so and then and then when it starts to turn, it'll be interesting um, how quickly that will move. So, uh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, it will. It, it ultimately should be driving all the uh, commodity prices higher because they definitely look like they're going to be moving up. Yeah, so I think so. In answer to another answer to your question, Tim, if if it's um, you know, there's no eternal favourite, but in the second half of the cycle, when you have high commodity prices and rising commodity prices, um, uh, the you know, relative to the dollar, the Aussie dollar, the Canadian dollar do well. Um, yeah, uh, you know, the commodity producers. I mean, I think I think high dollar price. I mean, if dollar, the dollar doesn't turn around soon, it's going to create sort of quite a bit of disruption in emerging markets. But um, again, if the dollar is depreciating and there's a sort of global boom uh, taking place, then emerging market currencies tend to tend to do quite well. And so, you know, the Brazilian real and uh, would be another, another, another one that should probably appreciate quite significantly. Fantastic. I think someone was telling me the Mexican peso has been one of the strongest currencies in the world this year. Oh yeah. Apparently so. I, it's not. It's not a go-to it, currency for me. So. <laughs> is it, check uh, it out. Is, their interest rates might be tied closely to the, or their currency might be quite tied closely to the U.S. dollar. Mm. I don't know. I mean, you would make sense given how much uh, how important the U.S. economy is to the Mexican one. Yeah. So I, I wanted to um, talk about your book. Before, I know you're on a hard stop, so I want to make sure that we've got plenty of time. Sorry, we've got an alarm test going on. Um, I want to make sure we've got plenty of time to talk about that. Now, um, I'm dying to get a copy of it. So uh, how long will it be before we can uh, before we can buy it? Um, I, you'll have to speak to my publisher about that. But I can say that I have handed them the draft. So... Um, it's now in the editorial process, though I'm not sure it's the editor has started editing yet. It was only only sent it in about uh, a month ago. Um, so it all 18 chapters of it have now been drafted. It's a bit long, I have to say. I'm actually I think I've said this. To you value before, for money, Akil. Value. For <laughs> yes, it's. Um, I think it's. It will probably be priced at around 19.99. I don't know if that's a trade secret or not, but I'm I'm telling you anyway. Um, so not, not on Amazon, it won't. I can, I can assure you of that. <laughs> so that's 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 just over a pound per chapter. So there you go. It's good value. Oh, it's cheap, cheaper, cheaper than a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. very but, much so nowadays. But naturally, <laughs> cer certain people might be getting a PDF copy ahead of time or something, or I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or or someone who wants to read the pre-edited version is quite welcome to it. Oh yeah, I'm absolutely. No, I'd love to. Um, yeah. If if that's well, basically as we were discussing on a on a very recent pod, we, we're quite big in Botswana. So if you want to shift some shift some units down there, we are the we are the we are the guy the go to guys. Shout oh, out to Botswana! Seriously, we are <laughs> seriously big in Botswana. So we we uh, the, the the marketing team at Harriman House are always looking for different channels. So I will mention that uh, there is we a are a con conduit into Southeast yeah. Africa. Okay, fantastic. 
Yeah. So, so how how did you find that process? Um, it, was painful. it painful? It wasn't cathartic. Painful. Oh wow. Uh, no, no. It, I I I realised on several occasions that I'm probably not cut out to be a writer. Is this is that, is this your first book, Akil? Uh, I suspect my first and only. First and last. Well, yeah, I've, I've got to say, you sent me a chapter, and quite honestly, I thought it was fantastic. I really did. So I don't. You know, I I think. Um, it's a shame to hear that the process wasn't a good one for you, but you know, the product certainly was excellent. I, I think, I think what, I, so I firstly had an unreasonable expectation about how quickly I could get it done because I'd been writing a newsletter for several years. So I thought, well, I'll take some of those newsletters, sort of stitch them together in a, and write a couple of introductory paragraphs to each. Uh, and that would be a Li- liaisons. I think, I think it's the technique. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Liaisons. Um, so I, I had an initial timetable that was woefully unrealistic and um, took me about a year longer to complete it than than I thought it would. So you're always sort of feeling slightly under pressure. And and then sort of writing, you know, writing, I find um, at least something of any length, you kind of, it takes you maybe a couple of days to really get into it and then it starts to flow. Uh, but of course, if you're working as well, it's quite hard to, um, you know, to, to, to feel that flow particularly regularly. What, what I did find in terms of the process was actually doing it and sort of having chunks of time. So about three weeks were off, off work and I, I got the most writing done uh, and the, probably the best writing done in those periods. Uh, so if I were to do it again, which I don't know if I will, uh, that would be the uh, approach I'd take. Um, uh, and, and then also not worrying too much about the final product, you know, you and sort of trying to go back over what you've already written before you've got to the end. Uh, I think that's another lesson from this. My my sense my sense is that uh, a book is a bit like a pregnancy, and I have no experience of the latter. But it's something you say, well, that was a painful ordeal, and then you, it happens again anyway. So <laughs> never, never say never. It's like these I people think, who run I a marathon, think... isn't it? They run a marathon, and then they go never again, and they go see another one. Go, uh, yeah, okay, I'll do that one too. Or to, br- not, to bring I'm it down to a level of reality, that. I to bring it down to a level of reality, I can relate to. It's like you have a the, the most crushing, appalling hangover, and you're never again. And then the next day, oh, back on the source. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, that yeah. that's true. That uh, that's true. I think I think you get sort of, uh, you know, uh, again, I'm I'm not having experience of pregnancy myself, but there's sort of an eph- euphoria with having a new child and so on, and that makes it all worthwhile. Now, yeah. maybe if I walk into a bookshop and see my book on the shelf or if i go to amazon and see it uh, see it there then i'll have experience some level of euphoria which then sort of makes it all worthwhile well, the other thing telling- to bear in mind is when you go into the book book bookstore make sure that not only do you take it off the shelf and then put it put it full on front on on each shelf so you can actually give it a bit of extra promo help <laughs> yeah so i'll make sure i, I take I mean, I, I don't know if it'll actually be sold in a bookshop but i'll take my copy and, and stick it on the shelf and then take a photo of it yeah, and when you're touring America, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that you'll, there'll be another book out. But because I mean, don't worry, I won't forget you guys. Well, I, I'm I'm so genuinely excited about this book because the content is completely original uh, from from what we've discussed. I've not heard of another book in this this same vein, and it's um, so so that's why I think it, it, it could be you know it, it, I'm, I'm hoping it will be very successful. But uh, from a personal point of view, I'm really looking forward to reading it and i you know sincerely mean that so um i'll definitely be buying a copy but i'd be happy to read any 
previous you know with spelling mistakes i don't really care it's just the yeah, information is what, what i want so yeah well look, i i mean i just to just to kind of very briefly kind of tell people how it's structured because they might be just a wet appetites um i i basically have structured the book around an entire 18 year cycle being the span of the cycle that i've been talking about um and i've divided the cycle up into eight stages uh, and it, within each of those stages i describe using a different uh, episode from history uh, what happens at that stage and then kind of have a bit at the end sort of says here's the significance of um of, of events in relation to the cycle and here's what you can do about it um as an investor um given what's happening at that stage of the cycle and then in between each of those so that's eight chapters and i've i've kind of scattered them through the 18 years 18 uh, chapter structure because um to coincide with the sort of rough vaguely the year that that phase of the cycle starts so for example the peak of the cycle is usually 14 years in and the, the chapter that deals with the peak is chapter 14. um in between those sort of sequential chapters i have these sort of explanatory chapters so you know why do we get the cycle why does no one see it which is the, i believe the chapter that you read paul um uh you know how what how do i see the sort of money creation process i've referenced it a few times in 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 the in the interview today you know money creation by private banking system how does government spending fit in um i talk a bit about commodities and and a different cycle the long cycle which um i think explains both commodity prices but also increasing geopolitical tension between um you know well principally between the us and china uh, and then um you know how sort of financial theory the modern portfolio theory and others fit into fit into kind of the view of markets and market efficiency etc and how that works for most of the cycle but not at the end uh, because the market tends not to see the effects of a collapsing land uh, market until until it's too late sounds amazing um so just before you go tell us where where people can find you so it's property share market economics.com is that that's right? correct. That's yeah. the uh, that's the subscription service that I run uh, with my friend and business partner Phil Anderson, who actually wrote one of the original books on the eighteen year cycle uh, using U.S. history. Um, yeah, I mean, people can find lots of resources. I've got an archives page where I post sort of interviews like this, and also um, we have a free newsletter which people can sign up to, or they can become a subscriber if they want to take it further. And a little and bit I, on the on Twitter, I, I see you do. Yes. Again, as I say every time, never always feel ashamed uh, because Tim is so prolific, and I'm, you know, I can I can barely remember to tweet once a week. I'm, I'm uh, saying yes. My ha my handle is Akil G Patel. Brilliant. Well, we'll put links in the show notes. Um, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fascinating and brilliant timing as always. And um, and we we'll hope to have you back soon. Do you have, do you have a last a last uh, inspirational message for our listeners? Um. Don't be afraid. Get your cash together and get ready to buy. Yeah, there we go. Love it. Fantastic. Thanks, Akil. All the very best. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Akil. Bye. Bye. Yes. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor. <laughs>